You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Utsav Shah, who is mostly using Pylons and Python to help build a file storage and sharing service called Dropbox. Utsav, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nick. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting folks know just a little bit more about Dropbox in case they haven't used it before? Sure. So I am an ex-engineer at Dropbox. I just left maybe like a month back and I worked there for four years. I started on the developer productivity team. I'm super passionate about making engineers more productive and I'm continuously thinking about how do we make their lives better like how do we make our tools faster like can git be a little faster should we change our like monorepo setup and that's where i started and eventually i was on the application services team which was responsible for dropbox's monolith python web application which was a python and pylons web app and we had like a few hundred developers adding code to it and um, most recently we wrote, wrote like a blog post on just our journey with the monolith how what it's been like to run a monolith for like 10 years and what we're thinking of like the future of the monolith oh man we have a lot of good stuff to unwind here so you mentioned a couple hundred developers do you have those broken out into a couple different teams or is it kind of just everyone touching certain areas of the code base based on like what their expertise is at yeah it's mostly i would say the right term maybe a functional team like a product team that wants to add uh, features to a particular area. So maybe there's a team that works on the admin console, which is more useful for enterprise customers. And there'll be some teams that work on, you know, parts of the sync UI, which is useful for everyone more generally. So that's how teams are broken down. Okay. And for Dropbox itself, just to get like a high level picture here, how long has that been running in production for? Like over 10 years, I guess, right? Yeah. So the company was founded in 2007 and the web app that we're talking about was developed by one of the co-founders. So I would say late 2007, early 2008, it's been running nonstop till today. Nice. And it's been using that uh, Pylons and Python stack since then? Yes. It's been a really long time that we've been using that stack. Yeah. Yeah. I think that even predates maybe Flask. I think so. I am not sure, but I'm pretty sure like it was the framework we use, like Pylons was like the hot framework at that time. I think that's probably why we went with it. Yeah, I remember back then in the early like early to mid 2000s, it was like Pylons versus Pyramid versus Flask or whatever popular comparison. So for Dropbox itself, are you able to share like what type of traffic you're dealing with? Like any type of metrics that make sense, like requests per second or a file shared per day or whatever? Yeah, I cannot share two specifics. I can share that it's like above 100,000 and less than a million uh, requests per second. Okay. That's uh, more than a few. <laughs> yes, that, that it's quite a bunch. And uh, we need to run a lot of web apps, like I guess servers in order to like handle that. I would say a majority of requests are from the sync engine itself. So there's not that many people. Uh, there's like under 10,000 like requests per second going to the web UI because most users don't actually use the web UI. They're using the Dropbox app, which is like automatically working behind the scenes. So most requests are actually from the Dropbox application to the Dropbox app, uh, web app. Yes. Right. So anytime someone drops a file or directory in that Dropbox folder, it's making like an API call back to your server. 
possibly like chunked out if there's like multiple files or whatever, but exactly. So maybe before we dive into all the details here, do you want to give us like a high level overview of what are the components that make up Dropbox? Like, you, you know, you mentioned you have that sync uh, API, you have the web front end, are there other, you know, services or applications running in the background? Yeah. The way we described it, I think is a solar system model, if that makes sense. There's like one large piece in the middle, and then there's like a bunch of small services onto the side. And you can imagine the history of how this has been developed, right? Like everything starts off with a large monolith. And then over time, you break off pieces into services that make sense. So one service is a service called Edge Store, which is basically the database that handles all metadata for Dropbox. So we don't store actual file contents, but we store metadata on like, you know, who owns the file and various other things like permissions and everything all in Edge Store. And that is like a Go service that's backed by MySQL. So you can imagine there's a service that decides which MySQL shard a request should go to and like translates like a user query into a SQL statement, make sure it's safe and everything. And that ends up going to MySQL and coming back. So that's one of the key most important components. If that goes down, Dropbox is down for sure. I don't think we'd be able to render the landing page as well. And kind of adjacent to that is a service that we call like the file system service. Or, and that is kind of an abstraction to the Dropbox file system so that the monolith doesn't have to think about, you know, X adders of a file and how they're maintained and like, how it works on Windows versus Linux versus Mac. All of that is kind of abstracted out by this file system service. And I would say these two pieces are like the key pieces other than the monolith itself, which has like business logic that runs on this information in Edge Store and like the file system service. Okay. Do you recall or were you around at the time for making decisions on, hey, should we use Python or Go for a specific service? I don't recall the specifics. I do recall, or I know that Edge Store initially started off as a client-side Python library and not a service. So the idea at that time was um, there were so many engineers working on product features. Like you can imagine that for every new product feature that they wanted to like persist to the database, somebody had to run a migration and that ended up going to like infrastructure teams and that became a headache. And it also was extremely slow to run migrations because there was just so much data to backfill and like to add indexes for and all of that. So, and at the same time, like Facebook had released a paper on Tau, which was its graph database. We hired a bunch of Facebook engineers and the initial prototype was instead of storing um, everything in MySQL, which is, first of all, it's going to get not like infeasible for the amount of data we're storing. Instead, why don't we have a client-side Python library just store JSON in a sense? So, and this was way before like MongoDB and everything had become popular. I think this is like 2011 or something. And that way we don't have to deal with continuous migrations that we need to run for every new product feature that gets added. And we ended up creating this like really weird NoSQL database client library within the monolith. And at some point we were like, we need to improve the performance of this thing. We need to move away from it living in the monolith to being its own thing. Since other users also want to use this abstraction that we've created over MySQL. And at that time, 
Go had slightly become more popular. People were talking about it 2014, 2015. And I think the company just took a bet on it. They're like, Google has supported this. We need some better performance than Python. It's a good second language for our backends to take. Right. So do you find that you are hitting the limits of the language now in terms of like handling requests per second, or is it kind of just holding up pretty well? Uh, you mean for the monolith and for Python, right? Um, for us, it's just a question of cost. And it is expensive to run a Python web application, which is handling those many requests. But we have a bunch of tricks to reduce that as much as possible. And um, it's much more expensive for us to rewrite the web app rather than you know, pay the money to run it on like more servers. Right. So yeah, going back to the PyLine setup there, do you want to maybe walk us through a little bit of what PyLines offers you from like a web framework level? Like like if you're familiar with Flask, is it sort of a micro framework? Is it somewhere even lower level or is it more batteries included like Django? Yeah, I, I should give a disclaimer that I am not uh, an expert on this. I've just seen it used. It uh, And from my understanding, it's similar to Flask. It doesn't provide all of... It, it doesn't have like the batteries included functionality like Django. It's more like you can really easy, easily set up like a route using like a decorator or something really similar. And we've built so many abstractions over time over this. I don't even know how exactly raw pylons is used, but from my understanding, it's kind of like Flask. And it only, um, we use paste HTTP server and that only supports HTTP 1.0 and it's been deprecated. So I don't think it's getting any bug fixes or new features. And yeah, again, from my understanding, it's mostly like Flask. Okay. So without diving too deep into that code base, then, I mean, at a high level, do you find that most developers on your teams are writing code from scratch or are you pulling in like third-party libraries? So I would say that there's a combination of using first-party libraries. So if you want to talk to Edge Store, like our graph database, you need to use the library that's been provided by the Edge Store team. And I would say most developers use that uh, since they have to store metadata. And we use a bunch of third-party libraries where it makes sense. So just, for example, like handling like date time and like time zones and stuff. And you, you can imagine there's like a bunch of random SDKs we need to talk to for one example I can think of on the, from the top of my head is like, you know, just handling what the tax rate is in like different countries. So Dropbox was built way before like Stripe was a thing. So we had like our own like payment stack and everything. So just handling all of that is another thing that we had to do. Right, that must be fun. So handling payments without Stripe, do you wanna walk us through a little bit like what's involved to do that? I can say that it's extremely painful. <laughs> and over time, like as you can imagine, like Dropbox is not a payments company, it doesn't, it doesn't need to specialize in that, but it's also hard to rip out our existing functionality. And the second thing is that migrating to Stripe would be really expensive at our scale. So I don't, I don't want to dive in too much into the details just because I'm not an expert on this, but the, the largest interesting pieces of Stripe are something that you get for free and you might not even realize the idea of architecting your system in a way where you can easily add SKUs that have like different prices, different subscription intervals, all of that, just you get that with Stripe for free. Dropbox was initially architected with the idea of we, ha we have like three or four SKUs, right? You have like a free plan, you have like a paid plan. And then over time, as we need to add like more SKUs and like play around with pricing experiment, then there was a feature called like paywalls where like which is a super unpopular feature 
where only like three devices are allowed on the free plan like adding all of that functionality ended up actually being harder from like a software architecture perspective and the actual implementation there's there's like a bunch of third party APIs that tell you you know like how much tax you're supposed to charge someone from this country versus that country and i don't want to downplay the significance or like the the complexity behind using like building your own payment system but i would say that the kind of challenges we faced have been more of you know how do we architect our system to be it, it like for it to be super easy to add like a new SKU, super easy to add like new country support that has been actually more challenging than you know dealing with the compliance stuff because if you think about it and if you think about like abstractions we can you can you can plug out payment processes we can use like different payment processes it's just about our code base and how easy our code base is in order to like run experiments with different things like different payment processes and all that i don't know if that answer makes sense no it totally makes sense yep it sounds like you know you could roll your own payment system but while it's difficult, it's not impossible, but probably wouldn't do it today with other options available, I guess. Especially, well, maybe at your scale would still make sense because the percentages and whatnot. But for most folks, maybe like continue using Stripe. Yeah, for sure. The, the And, and the, I guess the main point I was trying to drive is generally you would think that, you know, it's all the compliance stuff and everything that Stripe handles, which it does. And that's why you should use them. But there's also a lot of complexity in the product, right? Uh, the idea of being easily like letting people like you know deal with chargebacks and all of that that's not compliance complexity that's just product complexity and that's where there's actually a bunch of challenges which is just easier to outsource if you can afford it yeah for sure now speaking of compliance do you want to get into what is compliance like for files that are stored in your system like from end users Sure. So we basically have, uh, we don't have like end-to-end encryption. I think this is a pretty well-known fact, but we do encrypt files at rest and in transit and everything else. Okay. And internally at the company, do you have like a, like an admin, like a super admin UI that you can go through where there's restrictions to being able to see users' files unless like, you know, a hundred different boxes are checked or whatever? I can say that very few people, if at all, like I don't know of maybe only the engineers on the storage team can actually view users files like for everyone else like me included like even though I was in charge of the monolith which is like a pretty important piece and I was part of this on-call called like core on-call which is like the first line of defense like in before whenever there's like a large incident even we did not have access to users files and um, there is a, a, a support UI very few people have access to that, but I had access to that. The only thing I could do with that is see metadata, see at max, you know, like things like the file name. I couldn't actually see the file. And every access to that support UI was logged. And, you know, we support, we we have like a bunch of compliance. So we make sure that every quarter there is somebody who double, che- double checks the list of people who have access to that and there is like a permissioning web app which is something that we've open sourced which we had built like a while back which lets people gives people permission to access that support ui and everything so i actually don't even know i'm assuming that the storage team of course has access to user files and probably support teams but i have never actually spoken to anyone about 
reading like or i've never even heard that conversation that we had to read a user's file in order to like debug something or understand something because you can also imagine that that's a generally stable part of the system right like we're getting a file from a user we're encrypting it we're breaking it up into four megabyte chunks and we're storing it it's once you've built that and you have like tests for it and it works end to end it's hard to mess that up if that makes sense yeah, totally makes sense. Now, for that core functionality, do you know roughly how long that's been running for without being updated besides maybe like, I don't know, updating a third-party library due to like some whatever patch? Like, is that generally code that's been written for years and it just runs because it's basically perfect at this point? Um, no, in fact, uh, we have like a whole storage team, right? So the fact, so how the storage system actually stores and divvies up these files and everything, I think is continuously updated. They're always like researching, you know, can we encode our files in a way that will give us like, you know, a 5% storage uh, savings? Can we have better heuristics for moving files from like relatively like hot storage, something that people will need like right now to like cold storage, which will maybe introduce a little bit of latency, but it'll be much cheaper for us because most files are just written and not read. How that works behind the scenes is continuously updated, but the release process and everything for that team is... Uh, much more advanced and they make sure like everything is safe and they push like one one I guess metro at a time in order to make sure that if there's any bugs your files are still safe and all of that right but there are there are updates happening all the time or maybe not like big updates like they're not they don't have like massive projects rewriting everything from scratch but they are continuously tweaking things I would say yeah, I feel like if I were involved as like leading a team like that, that'd make me very nervous. Like, well, let's just rewrite everything from scratch with like a billion users using that. <laughs> yeah, but Dropbox did that, right? Like in 2014, like we stored everything in S3 and then we have a large project where we migrated most stuff to like our own data centers. And there's like a Fortune article or something on it. And I actually have a podcast where I talk to one of the engineers on that team. So a small plug to my own podcast on that. Yeah, I'll definitely drop that into the show notes because I definitely want to listen to that one because, yeah, it seems like not like a worst case scenario nightmare thing, but like moving that much data at scale, probably without any downtime or minimal downtime seems like it would be a difficult task. Apparently it was really hard, but I feel like the engineers who worked on that are just so incredible that I trusted that judgment. And I think the way they approached it made sense to me. I asked, like, you know, what kind of validations do you did you have in order to be confident in migrating and he's like you name it and we did it so the way they thought about it is that they're going to invest in every single safety measure possible because it wouldn't be right not to and it's it, it would always be worth it so they they tried they, they they validated every single way so that that gives me confidence in a sense right so i'm not sure if this is public information but do you ever list like how much storage you're actually dealing with like how many petabytes assuming there's like multiple petabytes I, yeah, I don't know how public this is, but I'm pretty sure we are an order of magnitude above petabytes at this point. I'm sure it's in exabytes. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, mind is now blown. That's a lot of files. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of people use Dropbox. Yeah, because I, I guess we didn't really go over the numbers here, but I think the last, that blog post that I, I did, like, glance at before this call, and there was like 700 million registered users at the time of that post. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... You can imagine like in corporate networks and a lot of people use Dropbox because it's uh, sync is really good compared to some competitors. 
So, uh, and that's important for customers who work in media with like large videos and everything. So you can just imagine if you have like a lot of media customers continuously creating new content and basically storing it forever, how that can like just increase your file demand, if not exponentially, very linearly and just very quickly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like a 4K video file, even like a couple of minutes is is very, very large. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people like, you know, edit uh, pictures or like, you know, just create prototypes in Figma and tools like that. So that landscape's definitely changing. But if you think about like, you know, video editing, like large scale, like video editing, or like if you imagine if you're producing a movie, you're still going to use like a desktop application. But at the same time, you want like features like version history and all of those nice things you get when you work in like Google Docs. Right. So a lot of people use Dropbox for that. And now if you store like multiple versions of a file of like a 4K file, you can imagine how that's going to increase your space demand. Yeah, for sure. By the way, earlier you mentioned, you know, a couple hundred different engineers working on all the Dropbox uh, services. And this is basically uh, a monolithic application, right? So so is all the code actually in one big mono repo or is it split up even though it's a monolithic application? Uh, that's a great question. We actually have what I like to call a multi monorepo setup, which sounds as terrible as it is as terrible as it sounds. We have uh, all of our server code in one repository, uh, our client code in one repository. Actually, that might that's not true as of a couple, uh, maybe like a month ago, and all of our mobile code in a separate repository. So all of the backend code sits together in one repository, and we just super recently merged it to like server and like the desktop code in one repository and mobiles in a separate one. Okay. So I'm not sure if you're going to know the answer to this one, but like how much code are we actually dealing with here? You don't need to be super specific, but is it like over a million lines of Python at this point or? Oh, 100%. It's way over a million lines of Python. I would say it's at least, let, let, let's just leave it at that. It's at least more than like a couple of million lines of code. Okay. Yeah, that's that's definitely good enough. And and for the desktop client, uh, what actual framework or language is being used to build that one? Yeah, so the desktop client is like a combination of Python and Rust. Like we have an interesting blog post about how we migrated from Python 2 to Python 3. And that was like a requirement since Windows and like a bunch of files, like OSs were dropping support for like Python 2. And so the desktop is Python 3, but the actual sync engine, the thing that decides whether we should download files or like upload files, uh, all of that, uh, you know, deciding how to reconcile local state with remote state and making sure we don't lose your data in the middle, that's written in Rust. Interesting. Do you recall the choice of going with that instead of Python for that specific part? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the idea of going with Rust was we just had, we worried a lot about correctness. The problem with the original Python sync engine was just uh, its behavior had gotten super messy over time. And that's fine because this is just a hard problem to deal with when you have to deal with like various like file systems and make sure that you're not losing user data. But what you really needed was like a language that helps you stay correct. And it's like hard to mess it, like hard to mess things up as much as possible. And performance was a part of it, but honestly, it was more of like the correctness on like the correctness guarantees that Rust gives you and the way you can implement things, you know, without like duct typing and everything. It was just, it just made a lot of sense at that time. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Now, it must have been fun upgrading the code base from Python 2 to 3. Do you want to give us a, a rundown on what that process was like? I wasn't involved in that particular effort, but I can certainly speak to it, and I certainly have friends who worked on it. It was... Hold on, are they still alive? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um, so Python 2 to 3 was interesting because running it on your own web app is much like migrating from python 2 to 3 is easier for your own web app when you control servers and you control deployments but when you have to ship code to like you know pretty much thousands or tens of thousands or even more desktops and change code on the fly or like change the version of python it's just so much harder so i do think we ended up forking the python interpreter for a bit and we actually injected stuff so that we can change which python inter like python interpreter was used on the fly and that's how we could start rolling it out in a relatively safer manner i think it required a restart in order to actually change the interpreter but we could do it and that required a fork and the only safe way of doing something like that was we basically added mypy types so i don't know if you're familiar with that but it's basically like you can add a bunch of like the idea is like gradual typing. You can add like types to your code base and that helps you ensure correctness. And like it catches a bunch of the major bugs, like, you know, the string difference, like the the, the difference in behavior for strings from Python 2 to 3. That helps you catch most of those since you can run MyPy in like Python 2 and Python 3 mode. We added a bunch of types. We added a bunch of tests, incrementally rolled out. Tried to, we found bugs, we fixed them and then you repeat. Honestly, that was it. It was just a lot of work over a lot of time. Right. So it sounds like, I'm not going to say it was easy work, but it was just like, I don't know, like grudging through the work to get done, right? Like just look at output from tool, fix output. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned tests here. Is it safe to say the code base in general is very well tested? I don't think it's super well tested. Uh, it's getting better over time, but there could always be improvements. You can think of like Dropbox, like it just grew in terms of number of engineers really quickly. And like the focus was on shipping new stuff and everything. And yeah. Yeah, I definitely can relate to that one. For the testing themselves, though, do you use PyTest or something else? Yes, we, we use PyTest. Okay. What about for like linting and static analysis? Do you use anything like uh, Flake 8 or Black for code formatting? Yeah, I was actually involved in migrating our code base from a bunch of random linters like Flake 8 and stuff to black. And it was because I personally was super annoyed and uh, super annoyed at the fact that the linter would tell me what to do, but not fix it. And I felt that, you know, why can't this linter just fix it for me? And maybe I was spoiled because I worked on Go code for a while and like Go format just does everything and nobody complains about stuff anymore. I'm like, we should just have the same experience with Python. So we ran like a migration of our code base from a bunch of random linters that we ended up using and that were like basically optional to black. Okay. So did all of that happen in like one git commit where it was just like format code base and then there was like 17 million lines changed? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, the answer is no. Like that there is a there is one commit that is really large in our code base, which I still remember the name of that commit because it would show up in git blame or like git log for a lot of old code, which was called opt out instead of opt in for black. And it was done by like a coworker of mine. The way we did that was uh, 
So we use Fabricator for code review, and this is like face like this is a tool that spun out of Facebook. And there's a whole other story of why we're on Fabricator. But basically, 2011, like I don't think GitHub was that big. Again, we had a bunch of Facebook engineers, and we just decided to go with Fabricator. And Fabricator ships with a tool called Arc, and you use Arc to create diffs in that world so arc also has this functionality for like linting so when you run the command arc diff it automatically runs like arc lint and arc is basically like a php tool because everything from facebook was from php where you have you can have like a linter framework where if you run arc lint arc decides whether it should run a particular linter or not based on the files that have been changed so the migration to black was basically can we just start opting in more and more files to that linter so oh if you match this top level subdirectory uh, top level directory uh, run black otherwise don't run black and then you can just keep adding more directories and keep running black incrementally and then once you're done with most of the major pieces you remove all of those directories and you say and you flip them into something like an opt out so any directory within that list will not be run with black, but everything else will be formatted with black. And that's what that large major commit was in the end. Oh, okay. And by the way, sticking on the topic of like testing here and just uh, development in general, can a single developer just spin up basically the entire stack locally? Yes, they can. And it wasn't easy and it, it ended up becoming unreliable in the middle, but now at least from when I was there, so a few months back, they still can, yes. It's it's not on a local Mac, I should say. So we provision remote VMs, uh, like EC2 VMs in a sense, and you can do development on those. And on that remote VM, you can spin up most of the stack, basically whatever you need in order to like uh, develop locally. So things like the file system service and everything, that can all be spun up locally, yeah. So then every developer gets their own universe of, you know, these local copies of whatever's running in their instance. Precisely. Okay. Do you use any tools to help automate that process? Like, do you have that running in Docker or something else? It's basically Docker with, so we use Bazel for our build system. And that's another blog post that we've like spoken about how we use Bazel and everything. So we have basically a few wrappers around Docker and Bazel. So we have a command that we ship called BZL, which is our Dropbox wrapper for Bazel. And in in that BZL command, if you if you run like a particular command, the one we, we basically call it the itest family. So itest start, itest run, itest stop. It builds our code base using Bazel and it runs it in a Docker container. That's basically what's ha- what happens behind the scenes. Yeah. Okay. And then from like a developer's point of view, like, let's say I work there. Like if I stop working today and go in tomorrow, will that VM just continue to live there or does it get like shut down and then spun up like in the morning or something? No, it just continues to live there. Um, And yeah, I think we might have some optimizations around that, but mostly it's just the standard VM. And we just have some scripts like, oh, if you have an association to your VM in four weeks, we terminate it and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, that is a pretty neat pattern because it does bypass the whole problem of like, well, you know, of the hundreds of developers we have, like 85 of them are using Windows, but some of them are using native Linux and others are using Mac OS. And like, how do you get a, you know, a dev box doesn't need like 64 gigs of RAM to even run all the stuff. Like you just, all those problems go away with uh, a remote dev box, I guess. Exactly. And like VS Code now, I don't know how, if you've used VS Code recently, but it has a really 
neat feature on like remote SSH where everything like even when you like open files and save files it it basically just automatically saves them on your remote VM so it doesn't even feel like you're developing remotely anymore it just feels like you're developing locally and it persists everything on the remote VM it's kind of neat yeah that is very nice like I don't use VS code personally but I'm aware of that feature and yeah it's awesome like I've used it a little bit yeah, so we have that, but then there's of course people who like IntelliJ and like I I used to be an IntelliJ user for like the longest time for like like PyCharm and uh, GoLand and all of those things. So then we also ship like a bunch of tools that help you sync like a local copy of your repo to a remote copy, and that makes sure that you know if you're just using like IDEs locally and you just want to keep your local and remote copy up to date, you can just use that tool. And in fact, that tool is called like DevBox Sync. So, which I think is pretty intuitive. Oh, okay, cool. So maybe now switching gears a little bit, uh, when it comes to the web UI, like, you know, end customers would view Dropbox on, in a browser. Uh, do you want to go over what the application for that looks like on the back end? Like, is this using uh, server render templates or, or is it like an SPA with the API backend? That's a great question. And, and we don't have a very like fancy answer. The The fact is that, we started off as like a Python monolith, right? And back in the day, what was popular was your monolith sending HTML back to the client. So in fact, it was it's all basically tangled up into like the backend in a sense. Um, so if you're familiar with what they did at Facebook with like PHP, where you could put like kind of HTML tags in your backend code, which would get sent back to the client and get rendered. That's basically what we did at Dropbox as well with this uh, technology called Pixel. The idea was you could write HTML in Python. There would be uh, an interpret, like Python interpreter extension, or I don't know exactly what, maybe it was like a plugin of sorts that would read that and convert it to, you know, function calls and classes and everything. Very similar to how React and Babel and all of those things work, but for Python. And in order to do local development, you'd have to restart your the, the entire backend, which was fine initially, but you know, like the world moved on and like front-end development, everything moved on. And now like React is like the new big thing. We still have a bunch of pixel, unfortunately, because there's so much legacy stuff. But what we've done is we've de-pixeled the code base and most of our front-end now is just like, as you said, like standard React. Um, and we're moving to a world where it's going to be like a single page app or we can have multiple single page apps so that we can develop productively across like multiple different teams. But there's still a part of our code which is sending back this deep pixeled HTML from the back end to the front end. And I think as of today, we still need to restart the entire server when we're making uh, front end code changes, which is not a great developer ergonomic, but we're... I think they're working really hard to fix that. Right. Do you happen to know, I mean, if you're not there personally to, to get the exact numbers, but was it like tens of seconds for that restart process or a little bit less, a little bit more? I believe so. It was, it was on that order of magnitude. Yeah. It's so funny how, well, at least I'm this way. Like I'm so super picky with dev stuff like that. Like if I have to wait more than two or three seconds, it just feels like the end of the world. Like it's forever. Yeah, we we tried our best to like improve developer productivity. And that's one of the lessons I've learned, right? Like trying to work on that team is just if you don't introduce like good practices and stuff, 
initially, then it's always going to be a huge migration to solve that eventually. At the same time, we don't beat ourselves up too hard for it because a lot of improvements and a lot of changes have happened over time. It's just that at some point we might have, or we should have decided, you know what, like we should have decoupled our like back end and front end like a little sooner because it's just going to get harder as we spend more and more years like writing HTML in our back end. But it's just hard to predict this in like 2011, 2012 when you're like 50 engineers, 100 engineers. Okay. And then for the front end stuff, do you happen to know if you're using something like Webpack to bundle up all of your assets, like your JavaScript and CSS? I believe so. Uh, I'm Again, I'm not a super expert on this, but I I think we use like, we, we basically have everything wrapped in Bazel and we're like Bazel calls out to Webpack in order to like bundle things up. And we actually have an interesting like, bundling setup like how it's eventually saved that that's like a whole other tangent i can go into um in order to make sure we're like not cash busting too much and all of that but i think under the hood it's like webpack okay yeah i feel like there's there's so much to talk about we should probably um maybe talk a little bit like about the rest of your tech stack right so you mentioned you know you're using python go a little bit of rest some javascript on the front end uh what's going on on the back end in terms of like do you happen to use things like Memcached, Redis? You mentioned MySQL. Are there any other databases going on or any other components of your tech stack that we didn't go over? I would say the majority is MySQL. Uh, we know how to run MySQL. We use it for a lot of things. We have a few like MySQL experts and everything. And at the same time, we don't want product engineers to use MySQL directly because it's just hard, right? Because when you have like so many users, like even adding like a small field, like you it has to get charted out and everybody has to think about that and it makes sense only for like a few infrastructure teams to think about how people should store their data so mysql is definitely the biggest piece with front ends like edge store um we certainly use memcache for all sorts of random things like rate limiting and all of that maybe maybe you could repeat part of your question so i i we use yeah we use memcache we use mysql I would say those are the biggest open source technologies. And for search, we basically built our own thing. We used to use HBase, but we've written another blog post about that, how we have like our own metadata system and all of that for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a very good answer. And by the way, when it comes to interacting uh, with the database or MySQL, at the Python code level, do you happen to use an ORM like SQL Alchemy or something else? I don't think so. I think everything is done by the Go service now. So in fact, I don't think we have a lot of Python code that uses SQL Alchemy. There is a little bit. There are a few databases that are critical and they're like, you just use them directly. And I think for them, we use SQL Alchemy, but for the majority of it, it's just Go code that uh, handles that. In fact, I think we might be using parts of the Vitesse code base to like, and Vitesse is like this thing released by YouTube which does things like making sure that, you know, SQL commands are not going to overload the database and all that. I think we use parts of that in order to validate uh, our SQL commands and everything, but we certainly don't use like a SQL alchemy or something over there. Okay. That's kind of cool to hear. It's like, you know, Dropbox operating at massive scale, but then it's like using some stuff from Facebook, some stuff from Google or YouTube specifically. It's kind of nice to see that all of you guys who are running at large scale do have similar enough problems that you can share the work that you've done and then use each other's tools to help your own stuff. For sure. I think like open source has been extremely like, like we use a lot of open source stuff as, as much as possible. 
the problem is that you know sometimes like using third party external saas providers is just way too expensive uh, like even you can imagine how large some of those contracts will be so that we don't end up using as much external saas providers as i think sometimes we should you know sometimes we should just pay for like the better tool because it will make our engineers more productive but it's much easier for us to take an open source thing and like you know we have eventually have to tweak it a little bit and that's the story with git right like all of the improvements that we made to git because our repo was like fairly large all of those mostly came from microsoft and chromium engineers and we ended up just like tweaking a few flags like fixing a bug or two and we could deploy all of those improvements to our developers so i think like our story with git is super emblematic of like our relationship with the community very cool and uh, speaking of saas tools by the way if you roll your own stuff from open source tools instead does that go even as far for sending out emails like transactional emails for emails i i i think we might be using a saas tool i'm not entirely sure but i i think we are end up, we end up using like some providers for emails because emails is just such a hard thing right you want to make sure that your ips don't get like put on like a spam list and stuff it's just and when you're working with saas providers you can actually talk to them and you can build relationships with them and eventually like since there's so much competition amongst the cloud it's like things are always getting cheaper at least that's my perspective so i think we might actually be using providers for that Okay, and I think even as like an end user, I've never done this personally, but I'm pretty sure you can like if you looked at the raw email header sent from like a Dropbox email, I think you can see the actual provider it's being sent from in some of the headers maybe. We probably can. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting pieces. I think we probably use a provider for that because it didn't break that much and my just gut feeling is if something didn't break too much, we're probably outsourcing it <laughs> to somebody who's an expert. Right. And by the way, just going back to like the rest of your tech stack, like one potential thing we didn't talk about was uh, what web server or load balancer software do you use? Like, do you happen to use Nginx or HAProxy or other stuff? We use Nginx a bunch. And this is another blog post. Clearly, we write, we really like writing blog posts and I like reading them. Uh, we're migrating from Nginx to Envoy. And that's where a majority of our load balancing is going to happen in the future. I wouldn't say we're like, 100% done but we're close to it. Okay. And when it comes to using Nginx, are you using the open source version or do you use the plus version? Uh, open source. Nice. Yeah, it's really cool to hear. And actually, I guess kind of curious, were there just no features of Nginx plus that helped you out so you just rolled with the open source one? No, it was more like um, the open source one was mostly good enough, like the only like again, I'm not an expert in this particular area, but like the open source version was good enough, and it's important for us to use open source just because we eventually end up needing to tweak things. Uh, we always like have like a few patches and stuff, and using Bazel it makes it really easy because you can just like store patches and it makes sure like your patch is still building and all of that. That just becomes like a reality with like most of the open source things that we end up using for you know large pieces like Nginx. And if if you're if you know that that's going to be a thing, you have to use like the open source version, right? You can't end up paying for something which you can't tweak. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, on the topic of maybe serving assets, because uh, you you have quite a few files that the internet is able to access, do you have all that sitting behind like a homegrown CDN or something else? I think we use CDN providers, and we have like a network of pops, like points of presence around the world, and we work with a bunch of CDN providers to make that fast and easy. 
Nice. And yeah, I understand if you can't get into specifics on that one. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk more about your hosting setup. You know, you kind of mentioned like an EC2 compatible thing for the dev environments. Like, do you happen to use AWS or do you use something else? We use a combination of like the public cloud and our homegrown like internal data center. And we try to be super pragmatic about it and see what makes most sense. Um, maybe a symbolic example is if you think about CI CD load. So we had our own like custom CI server. That's like, you can imagine that, that has extremely like bursty load, right? Like in the day when developers are working like Pacific time, like uh, Eastern time, there's a lot of demand for CI systems. And like at night and on the weekends, it's like very few people working relatively. So a lot of that bursts to like, or, or runs on public cloud and like, place where we know we're going to need a lot of servers for a lot of time. That is generally on our internal data centers. Okay. Are you able to get into a little bit specifics, like how many servers you run roughly? Doesn't need to be super exact. You can, yeah, you can imagine it's, it's a lot. It's not, it's nowhere close to, I would say Google or Facebook or anything, but you can imagine that we have like multiple, like of our own data centers. I don't want to get maybe too detailed and honestly for the storage numbers i don't even know i know that for our uh, monolith web app itself it was like over a thousand so you can imagine how that bursts to like if we need more than a thousand of our own servers for uh, our web app how many storage nodes and all would, would probably be much more than that right okay so safe to say hell of a lot of servers lots of memory lots of cpu lots of storage all self-hosted in your own data center Exactly. And you can imagine like then there's also like backup capacity in other data centers and we need to be able to fail over in case, you know, there's like an earthquake or something. So there's a lot of machines. Yeah. So do you have, a, I guess, a whole team of like engineers just on that, basically just making sure all the infrastructure is set up? Like they're not doing app development, they're just focusing on infrastructure? Precisely. So there is like a network engineering team and a bunch of random teams like that. Uh, who are responsible for data center operations and everything. Yeah, I feel like we can honestly spend probably like five hours just talking about that stuff. It's so interesting to me. But um, when it comes to these servers, though, do you happen to know what distro of Linux you run on them? I think we use Ubuntu. Okay. Is that for, I guess, all of them? Or is that like there's a subset? I believe like most of our servers, we try to standardize as much as possible. I don't think we use like, and in fact, I think we're running the same version of Ubuntu on every single uh, production server. I don't think we try to have a lot of divergence there because you have to make sure like all of your software runs on all of these. So you want it to be like as stable as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when it comes to provisioning all of these servers, do you use any automated tools like configuration management tools like Ansible or something else? Uh, Chef, that's the tool of choice. Nice. Were you involved a little bit in that, like, do you know decisions around why you chose that over other ones? Was it just like it was around at the time or you just had preferences towards it? Not at all. I think just somebody had an opinion on Puppet versus Chef and they went with Chef. Okay, that makes total sense. So now I'm, I'm really curious to hear like what your deployment process looks like, right? You have like, what does a feature look like from development on a dev box, which is technically running, you know, in a VM somewhere to them pushing that to what was that? Uh, Get ser like hosted service that you're using? A fabricator. Right, fabricator. So do you want to walk us through that whole flow of like what a developer does to get code from their dev box to it actually running in production? Yeah, I think um, 
it's interesting and it's also not interesting in the sense that it's very similar to most companies so you develop you hack on your code locally or like on your dev box and you use vs code or you use uh, one of our syncing tools to make sure that it works you run your uh, code in like these docker containers build them with bazel so you run like bazel test bazel build uh basil bzli test in order to make sure like it works and it looks good and everything and as soon as you're done with that you basically git commit and then you run this command called arc diff arc diff runs like your linters and make sure your code is clean and we have like a bunch of homegrown linters that you know we make sure that you're not checking you're not using a particular library that you're not supposed to and we have like linters for all that and you're adding like you're you're not checking in a comment with fix me so that you fix it before you send it up for review. And as soon as that all succeeds, our diff basically creates a new branch on our Git server and it creates the equivalent of like a pull request. And you send that to like a code reviewer, they accept it. Code reviews are not required, by, 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 but by convention, like 95 or like 99% of people do it. And as soon as that is approved, when you want to submit your code, since there's so many developers working at the same time, it's very easy and it happens all the time where you will submit some code that races with like another person's code and breaks the build. So what we have is this concept of a commit queue where as soon as you say, I want to land my code. So you run this command like arc land or you click a button on like the fabricator UI, your, your code will basically be sent to a service that tests your code and what it does that how it does that is it, it makes like an api call to the cd server like the ci cd server and it says you know this is a new code change tell me whether it's uh, green or not and as soon as the ci cd server says okay it's green we can basically the, the commit queue itself pushes that change onto like the main branch and um, that is basically the initial development flow. Do you have any questions so far? Or then I can keep going to like the deployment and everything. Yeah, it sounds really cool so far, especially with that queue. So is that queue basically just like first in, first out? It sequentially runs them just to make sure there's no parallel builds going in at once or commits? Actually, actually, I did I misspoke. The the commit queue is not really a queue in the sense like it's it's a misnomer. It it does run everything in parallel, but what it makes sure is like you've rebased your code and all of that. So it makes sure you've rebased your code. It makes sure that it's running a certain amount of time. It's also possible for you to like pause all commits in case like pause all testing in case like uh, you know there's like a broken commit and you don't want like new commits to like come in. Or it, it it helps you like buffer things in case like the CI CD system is broken. And it, it actually does run them in parallel, though, because at some point, I, I think we ended up deciding that we have to run it in parallel because people would wait for too long, like four hours or six hours if they each each code path or like each commit had to wait for the others. And you can imagine like when this code freezes and all that, there's everybody who's rushing in to make their change go through. So the commit queue basically just ensures that you're rebased onto like the latest main every time, like main branch every time you've committed. So that is the purpose of the commit queue. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense. Cause it can't be like, okay, commit code, uh, come back next Tuesday. Like, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it, it that's just a trade off. But And then there are times when we run into like races where uh, you have 
two pieces of code in the commit queue in parallel getting tested on a clean like main branch and they both pass and then when both of them go in together they fail that used to be relatively rare until like you know more than 10 years into the company so it was like the good it was like the right trade off at that time right so do you want to continue onwards with the rest of that flow yeah exactly i can i can go on then the problem is that we don't run every single test in the commit queue the the it's just a capacity crunch and like um it, it's also not that useful because you can imagine we have like thousands of selenium tests and running them non-flakily takes a while and like make to make sure that they're all green and if they're red they're actually red because of your change is actually hard so we don't run all of these tests in the commit queue but as soon as you your code lands uh, every 20 minutes we basically pick up like a commit and we run like the full suite of tests like the GUI tests, like the Selenium tests and everything. And if that batch of tests fails, then there's this other system that we call Athena, which is basically the investigation system where it basically is like, okay, it looks like a commit is turned red on master uh, or on the main branch. So you have a test that's failing. What it, it, it does is it tries to find out whether the commit has actually broken the build or is it just like a flaky test? And the way it does that, it, it, it runs that test uh, on that commit at least 10 times. It runs that test on the previous commit at least 10 times. And if it's passing on the previous commit and failing on the current commit, it automatically reverts your code. So, which is a little unfortunate for the developer. Like I wish we had built like a better developer experience so that they don't have this like, oh, my code's on the main branch and must be good to go because a bot could just come in and this bot could take a while, right? Because those Selenium t tests just take a while to run. But this bot basically decides what looks like your build or your uh, commit broke the build and it automatically reverts your code. But eventually the build will turn green and every single test will be passing. And that's when we can move on. So yeah, again, let me pause if you have any questions so far. No, that is good so far. And then I guess once those tests are passed, then there's like the fan out, right? Just getting that onto the servers. Exactly. So once once that's done, we have like a homegrown deployment system that we built like way back in 2011, uh, which takes passing code. And then when somebody hits a button, we, we have something very similar to like AWS code pipelines where, uh, and I can talk specifically just about the monolith because there's like a lot of services with different release flows, but we push it onto like stage and for us, stage is just like dog fooling in the sense that stage is Dropbox, but only for employees. So that's the first step. And then people can point out if they found out any bugs. So that there's like an auto push for that. And then once a day, we do like the full rollout. So we push to like 10% like canary and we run like some checks to make sure that we haven't broken like a route. And we do that using like automatic metrics. And if everything looks good, then it gets pushed to production over like you know in small steps of like 10 percent like 25 percent 50 75 okay so did you write some custom tooling for that to be like okay 10 percent of users can do this and then eventually we'll ramp it up exactly so we we built something on top of aws step functions to be able to configure these like pipelines that lets us do these things like push it push to only like 10 percent of hosts and like 30 percent of hosts and so on Nice. So do you also have things like feature flags at the application level to turn things on and off on demand? Yes. We have something very similar to 
the SaaS product like launched darkly, we have like an, a homegrown version of that. Very cool. So do you end up finding yourself putting basically every feature behind that until it's rolled out completely and then you take it away as a feature and it's just like part of the system? Many, many features are passed to that. You know, sometimes you're just like refactoring code and there's like not much you can do. But yes, the whole idea is to use that feature flag system and like non-engineers can turn those off and on. So that's useful for like product managers and everything. So yeah, that is the flow that you're supposed to take. Very cool. Yeah, I can imagine your like super backend admin for staff members must be like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> yes, it's 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 not a very fancy or like good looking UI or anything. It just works. Right. And by the way, when it comes to this whole deployment process and secrets, so how do you deal with things like, you know, API keys or database passwords and stuff like that? Are they stored somewhere? Yeah, I might be sounding like a broken record, but again, we had to build all of this stuff in like 2011 and they just basically work. We have a homegrown like secret system where you can check in secrets to um, using like a tool to a Git repo which stores them in an encrypted fashion. And then the team that owns that just provides like a bunch of like libraries so that we can use it without actually storing it in uh, plain text, if that makes sense. So there's just like another Git repo which has all of this stuff encrypted um, and we can read that from our code base in production and nice. then there's like a whole permissioning system so only certain services are allowed to read certain secrets and it's very similar to like aws parameter store you know the whole world would be so different even for dropbox if it were built like 10 years later because there would be so many things we'd get for free um it's just like we ha we had to build a lot of stuff because none of this was available on like aws like 10 years ago yeah that's definitely a theme i'm seeing here it's like using pylons making your own secret management solution uh, your own payments, yeah, a lot of and stuff. And you can you can imagine that it's like not even super high priority to migrate everything because like if a system basically works, then is it worth moving? Like the benefits are also unclear, and you'd also have to put a lot of engineering hours into migrating everything. So it's also been like a philosophical question for a lot of people. Like you know, at what point should we migrate to like the best external providers and all for this? Because certainly we'd get like a lot of features for free, but is it fine? Because we'd have to put like engineering hours and that's another thing. And how do we prioritize what to migrate if everything basically works? So, Right. Well, one thing I've learned from this conversation is like, you know, even having to code all of that stuff up yourself, you're like those are more like ancillary things unrelated to your actual product of like, you know, syncing files and sharing them. Um, but it's still cool to see that you've accomplished so much with a couple hundred engineers is sort of a lot, but like it's not that that many. Yeah, let me clarify to say that I would say that we have over 500 developers on the backend and roughly like half our backend developers work on the monolith and half our developers actually work on non-monolith parts. I wouldn't say they all work on ancillary stuff because there's all, like there's the metadata system and there's like the file system, which is also like you need to improve that in order to ship new products. But only half the developers actually end up working on pure small like i shouldn't say small but like scoped improvements to the product in terms of new features right like adding like i don't know bulk delete support on the web ui or something like that exactly exactly okay so maybe now we can talk a little bit about uh planning for disasters or unexpected events uh, i would imagine you know given the scale that you're at you probably have some very well thought out systems but like when it comes to backing up you know users files and stuff like that do you want to give us a rundown on how that works for sure. And I think 
to add to the we need to have all of those right? there's like all of these like business compliance business continuity programs and all of these things that we need to have in order to maintain compliances i think i don't know too much exactly about how we back up files because i was never part of a team that did a lot of stateful stuff but i can talk about how we dealt with like that for our stateless services for our monolith and everything and the idea was just we have multiple data centers running all of our code at at least a few percentage like at least a, a certain percent a non trivial percent of user requests went to alternative data centers and that would make sure that you know even if like one data center has a problem or there's like a network cable that's cut uh, the, our business could keep running yeah i'm sorry i don't have too much of an answer on how we actually back up our files i know that based on our blogs we store it at least in like three zones and we have like a really large lots of 9% guarantee of like durability and i think the answer is just like storing it in multiple places so that if it gets deleted by mistake in one place or there's like a code bug that we release it doesn't destroy everything right yeah that's kind of what i thought in my mind anyways it's like your whole business is around storing files safely so like the answer to backups is basically yes like everything basically exactly yeah just store it in multiple places release only one metro at a time have a lot of checks so we have this concept of like verifiers that check for invariance we have a lot of like verifiers that you you have to complete like a verifier run of a lot of data before you like continue with like your deployment and all of that so all of these checks have to run and you just release new storage code like relatively slowly and that's how you make sure that you're not doing something super destructive with user data Right. Now switching gears a little from like file backups, do you want to talk a little bit about like alarms and notifications and you know dealing with logging and error reporting? Like how does all of that come through? For sure, and that's a topic of another blog post that somebody wrote like a year ago. So, we used we had to build our own homegrown monitoring system way back in the day. Uh, and th- that system basically sh- used to give us something very similar to Prometheus in a sense where uh, you can have like counters, gauges, histograms, and then you can set up alerts based on those metrics. And over time, that system started showing its like age. We built like, an, and then we had to decide whether we we're gonna use like an external provider or build another system. And in this case, we just had to build our own because all of the external providers were just so much more expensive for us, even if you, count the engineering team that it would take in order to build a new system just monetarily because the fact is that you know you have so many servers uh, running you know just for storage and like for stateful stuff and all of the external providers end up charging you per metric and for cardinality and we wanted to have metrics on like you know can we see from this particular host whether it's having like too many problems or like its io is slower than it should be and so we just decided that you know it just makes sense for us to build our own thing and we built something that i would say is remarkably similar to prometheus and it works in our production for our production use case the way it works is it just has like a cassandra backend with and a bunch of caches in front of it it's it's not super complicated and it's, it's doing like your standard like digests and everything and then you have like an alerting system based on the metrics you get from there in terms of logging this is again a very similar story we have like a logging system where exceptions and everything are just aggregated and you can see them and group them by service 
and there's like links from the like the stack trace that like our code search tool and all of that okay so have you built something like similar ish then to like maybe what you might see if you use sentry uh exactly it's it's not as nice looking as sentry by any means but it works okay and then for those notifications like on certain errors is there uh, a team of folks who get notified if things start to go crazy yeah, so my team would get notified if there were problems with the monolith or if in general we have like an availability hit to like the overall, you know, our our global external availability was down or something, that would be my team. And then if like the, the metadata storage service had errors, that particular team would get notified. So it was partitioned based on who owned which services. Okay. And on the topic of like disasters and like, you know, maybe malicious users earlier in this call, you mentioned, uh, you know, rate limiting and things like that. Do you have like a custom solution at like a load balancer level that you've written to deal with that? Like, how does that work? Uh, rate limiting? Yes, it works. I don't think it necessarily works at the load balancer level yet. It just works through like application code and like decorators in our Python code that just check with memcache like oh don't allow so more than x requests in certain amount of time and there's like a fancy live like tiny library i should say that talks to memcache and makes sure that you know it's stuff like token buckets and all of that to just make sure we're not hammering a particular api call and we prevent all of that so i would say it works at the application layer we would like it to work at the load balancing layer and they're working on that i don't know if they ended up deploying it Okay. So that fancy tool that you were talking about, is that another homegrown one or is that like an open source tool? No, I think it's just a small like library that we wrote that just talks to memcache. Okay. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about uh, your best tips and lessons learned from just, you know, basically organizing all of this infrastructure and applications. Yeah, I would say that um, monoliths don't necessarily have to be bad as long as you invest a little bit in them. Um, I know a lot of people talk about like monoliths versus microservices and everything. And I think people, you should, you should really think about what problem you're solving when you're migrating from one to the other and what your goals are. Uh, a lot of, a lot of times you want to optimize for production, but you also have to think about like developer productivity and it's just much easier to maintain productivity when everything is constrained to like one thing and you're not trying to spin up like a hundred processes of like different services and everything. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is it's not, it's not terribly impossible. It's not completely impossible to have like a light on call load, even though we were responsible for like hundreds of other developers code in a sense, like we were on call if like, you know, their route suddenly start having a lot of issues and it was like a high QPS route with enough testing with enough like monitoring to make sure that you know releases are safe it's actually possible to have a light on call load it's not completely impossible um, last yeah i would and i would say just think about think deeply about what problem you're trying to solve when you're migrating to like a particular architecture and it's most important to get like the layering correct as long as your code is structured in a way that it's easy to move from one architecture or like one way you deploy stuff to another it's all fine but once your code base is in a terrible situation i'm talking about things like circular imports and all that it's really it's really hard to untangle yourself from that situation so get the basics right you know get the layering correct make sure your code is structured correctly and 
all of these other problems are basically problems you can experiment with and you can solve if you have your fundamentals down, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of cool to see, like, you know, almost a takeaway there is like, it doesn't really matter what web framework you're even using, right? It's like you guys are using pylons, like mm -hmm. not too many pe people are picking that today, I would imagine, but it's like here you've built a well-architected application that's using it, no problem, because you have uh, very solid fundamentals. Yeah, the sad thing is that no business has failed completely because its code base was shitty. Maybe that's a sad takeaway because uh, at least I've heard of so many companies where the code base isn't great, the business does fine. And it's it's more like, I don't know if I have a moral to that. It's just, we, we argue a lot about tech choices, but as long as people can get their work done and they're not so pissed off that they're quitting in droves, maybe it's okay for things to not be perfect. Yeah. That was like one lesson I learned maybe the hard way. Right. That makes total sense, right? It's like, at the end of the day, it's like, well, I'm visiting the website in a browser, just return back the data that I need in maybe 100, 150 milliseconds. And I'm a very happy person from like an end user's point of view. Yeah. Cool. So Utsav, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah. Thank you for hosting me. I think this was a lot of fun. Like I walked down like a bunch of random memories and I really feel like we can talk for like hours and hours on all of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it was great having you on. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, I just want to tell listeners, uh, I have a software podcast as well. And I talk to like both engineers and like CEOs and other like leaders on their journey, like building production sites and like just rolling stuff out and what their experience has been. It's called Software at Scale. And I think if you Google it, you'll find it at softwareatscale.dev. And if you'd like to listen to it, I would be super grateful. And again, thank you for hosting me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem. And I'll make sure to drop all those links into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.